0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week, and thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground community. Before we get started with this week's episode, reminder, get on iTunes, leave us a review and a rating, and make it a five-star rating, well, because... We know you love the podcast and we certainly appreciate your support, but that rating helps us grow the podcast and continue to get more and more listeners and better stories for you guys to hear. So leave that rating and review for us. Get on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow there as well at Hasaground Ground or at Hasaground Podcast. Keep up with the show, each guest, each week, everything we have going on and the big news we have coming up in the future. Also remind you guys, get on our website, hasaground.com. Click on that Amazon banner right in the center of the homepage. Do your Amazon shopping. Whatever you need to buy, we'll get a percentage of what you spend, and then we donate that back to the charities that are featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. And as we've been telling you for the last couple of weeks, we're very proud of this that we've been able to make our first donation through our partnership with Amazon from the stuff that you guys have spent through our website so it's a big deal to us we certainly appreciate it i know the organizations and charities that we're donated back to they certainly appreciate it but it's a great way for you guys to be able to help out veterans charities and organizations just from your own living room from your couch you don't even have to get up and do anything Again, so just go to hazardground.com, click on that Amazon banner. Also, while you're on the website, click on the Sponsors tab, check out all the sponsors that we have, support them, they support us, you support us. It's all a big family here at the Hazard Ground, and we want to keep that going forward as we continue with all these great veteran stories. With all that said, ready for this week's episode. Joining us this week is a former First Lieutenant in the Marine Corps who had a 16th month tour of duty in Vietnam. After that, he became an author, including over 17 books, three memoirs. Memoirs. He is Phil Caputo joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Phil, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Uh,
1: Thanks very much for having me on the uh, on the show. I guess you call it a show. It it is a a show. Yes,
0: (laughs) it is a show. I also uh, failed to mention in the open. I do want to say you were also part of the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary. And the only reason I bring it up is because a lot of our listeners have seen that, they're aware of it, and it's just a reference point of of where they can get more information on you yourself. So we'll get into all that, but start back at the beginning, Phil, and and tell us why you joined the Marine Corps.
1: Well, uh, there were any number of reasons. Um, Back when uh, I was uh, in my late teens and 20s, of course, the the draft was uh, something that every young man uh, had to face and if you were 1A, which I was, you were virtually certain to be uh, drafted into the military and that inhibited a lot of people from employing you when you got out of high school or college. The uh, usual question was, have you done your military service yet? So um, I was motivated partly by that to join, partly By the examples of the generation that had gone before me, including uh, three uncles, all of whom had been in the South Pacific. Wow. At Tarawa, Iwo Jima, uh, and um, I'm trying to remember where the third one was. Uh, And, uh, um, excuse me, it was two uncles. That's right, two uncles, and I had one in the Air Force. Right. And um, so there was, you know, there was that example. It was just something one did back, back then. And, and, and you wanted to do it, uh, because you felt you were carrying on in this kind of heroic or, uh, or noble tradition of, uh, of people who had basically saved the world from tyranny. And then, uh, I, I think a third motivating factor was just a sense of restlessness and, and adventure. Um, you know, the Vietnam War, though it was going on when I joined the Marine Corps, when I went on active duty in 1964, did not at that moment involve any regular American troops. There were advisors there, um, but not any any combat troops. So I didn't really have much of a thought about going to war as, as I did as just traveling and the world so I, I think that that would sum up the threats of what motivated me to join the Marine Corps
0: and so when you you say you didn't really think you were ever going to go to Vietnam when you signed up
1: yeah uh, I, I, I didn't I didn't think so I mean uh, the uh, I was I, I'm old enough to have remembered the Cuban Missile Crisis I thought there was as good a chance. I would end up uh, in Cuba, in Cuba yeah. at, as, as Vietnam, and um, in addition, there were um, there were a lot of tensions at that time in Southeast Asia, but not even necessarily in Vietnam. There was one in Laos,
0: yeah, and, Cambodia, and everything else, right? And
1: Cambodia and all of that, and so there was some possibility of of Ending up there, not necessarily in a in a big shooting war, but in right. some kind of combat capacity.
0: When but, when you look back I on didn't it, really,
1: I didn't really think that much about Vietnam. Matter of fact, to tell you the truth, I think I like my parents had only the fuzziest notion of where Vietnam was.
0: <laughs> when you look back on it, do you feel like it was naivete to think that you wouldn't go?
1: Not really, no. Um, if, if I was naive, and so was uh, about 90% of the country. I mean, don't forget that in 1964, Johnson said, I will not send American boys to fight an Asian boys war. And uh, we all believe that.
0: Yeah, well, listen, and quickly, the political landscape changes. Um, okay, so how and when do you find out that you're going to Vietnam?
1: Oh, I was based on Okinawa with the 3rd Marine Regiment. um, And uh, we began to get some indications of it. First of all, we were all uh, required to go through uh, jungle warfare school. Right. Uh, That kind of (laughs) told you something. And uh, um, and then one of our companies uh, in, I think, January or February... Was sent to Vietnam uh, to do some sort of reconnaissance work and some air, airfield security work at uh, Da Nang. But even then, we kind of we we were we were under the understanding that this was going to be like a thirty-day mission. And then all of a sudden, on um, March eighth, or maybe it was the night of March seventh, actually we just got the word that that we were we were mounting out and uh, basically as you know the old saying was is grab your hat and grab your trash and let's go <laughs> and uh, and the next thing i knew by by that morning the morning of march 8th, we were on c130s uh, bound for the uh, tanang airfield and that's when i really knew i was going there uh, that we were all going there
0: is is there fear at that point, apprehension, nervousness? What are you thinking and feeling?
1: Oh, no, no, no. It was just the opposite. Uh, it was this kind of almost, um, well, I won't say celebratory, but kind of a party atmosphere. Um, you know, uh, we uh, Marines were professional soldiers, even if you were in like I was for only three years. And you... Uh, Trained all the time for combat, and so after a while, it's a little bit like being a football player and constantly at practice or at scrimmages, but never playing in the game. So this was going to be the the real deal, the real game.
0: Um, I mean, you know what's funny, Phil, is that you know perspective is such a different thing, and and generationally, you know, my I was obviously too young for Vietnam, but. You know, what history taught me about it was that it was just this awful thing, right? Like it was people were dying, you know, relentlessly and everything else. And so I always asked that question to people because I assume that you guys knew going into a war that it was not going to end well for a lot of people. I mean, when I found out I was first going to the Middle East, I'm like, well, they, listen, war is bad. There's a chance I'm probably not coming home. So it, there's a little bit of apprehension there that never crossed your mind.
1: You know, Mark, it must have. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: I, it must have crossed my mind somewhere, but I can't remember it happening.
0: Sure, okay. I Just
1: all I remember was is is uh, the the Third Marines. We were based uh, up way up in northern Okinawa at uh, a place called Camp Schwab, and I just remember getting on the six buys to go down to Kadena Air Force Base, which is at the far southern end of the island. Uh, And uh, hearing the troops uh, yelling stuff like, hot damn Vietnam, you know, and goofy stuff like that, Uh, so that uh, I I really think there was this kind of uh, happy warrior attitude uh, that that we had. And uh, don't forget is that the other thing is that your generation, uh, if I may use the word, had the benefit of of mine uh, uh, writing and talking about and as well as uh, doing a lot of journalism about the Vietnam War. Um, And you guys kind of grew up with that and the Vietnam War was very different than World War II in the sense of its outcome. Um, Whereas I grew up with this uh, mythology of the invincible American uh, the invincible nation of America, uh, conquering the world uh, for uh, for freedom and democracy, and as I said, my uncles had been in in the war, so that um, and and we didn't see that much of the reality of it. As a matter of fact, I would say that we saw almost none of it. All of the films from World War II were sanitized and heroic. Sure, yeah. It was different with the films that came out of Vietnam because, as I said, the outcome of that war was very different, in addition to which the reasons for fighting it were so completely murky compared to to Vietnam.
0: Okay, so when you get there, uh, is there a moment you remember that you realize the hot damn Vietnam kind of mentality went out the window and you're like, oh my God, you know, I'm in a bad spot.
1: Um, yeah, I think it was, um, well, I don't recall exactly when, uh, but it was a couple of weeks after we had landed and uh, one of my squads was out on a patrol forward of the Da Nang air base or airfield. And uh, my squad leader uh, stepped on a mine that blew his foot off. And uh, that was kind of sobering, <laughs> to say the least. Right. And uh, But still in all, I guess we may have looked at it as... as almost like an accident, so that I can't say that there was a seminal moment. There were a series of moments. That was one of them. Another one came maybe a couple of weeks later, uh, a couple of weeks after that incident, when uh, our company was sent way out into the bush uh, on a helicopter assault, the first one that we ever made. may have been one of the first ones that American troops ever made in Vietnam. And um, as the helicopters are coming into the LZ, the LZ was uh, was under some small arms fire. Nothing very heavy, just a kind of pop, pop, pop. And after we had landed, we know we saw the, that there was a a, a uh, unit of uh, Viet Cong guerrillas up on this ridge line, um, and they were shooting at us. <laughs> And so uh, one of our platoons assaulted them, and my platoon and another one went around the ridge to outflank them, and uh, they, we killed four or five of them. And I remember going through this swamp. They had run into this swamp uh, from us. They were trying to escape up this, uh, into this, to this base camp they had up in the jungle, and they got caught in the swamp. And I remember going through the swamp with my pistol out and suddenly almost stepping on this dead Viet Cong who had uh, uh, been shot with a machine gun. And his, his all of his insides were bulging out. Oh, God. Uh, and, uh, in fact, I almost shot him again. I was so startled that I saw this face. You <laughs> know? In the bush, and I almost shot him with the pistol when I saw that he was extremely dead, and uh, and we then pushed up into this ravine to their base camp, and I uh, I remember we we got out a lot of documents and papers and photographs, and we had a uh, Vietnamese interpreter with us, and some of the papers were letters to either wives or girlfriends that were. Uh, you know they were rather tender in their expressions you know I, darling I you know can't wait to see you again kind of thing and uh, mm. and the sudden recognition that this abstraction you were fighting was really very much like you he had the same desires and same uh, uh, fears and uh, and then I would say that maybe the real moment came uh, in June of 65 when one of my machine guns, my, my machine gun squad leader, who I was really, I really liked the guy. He was a really good trooper. He was a good sergeant and, and, and funny. He had a, he was a humorist and he had a kind of loosey goosey air about him. He wasn't typical kind of, you know, brush cut, uh, uh, the army uses the word "strack." They used to use back then, meaning uh, a, almost somebody less like a martinet. He was just the opposite, and he had just had a son born back in Pennsylvania, and he got he got hit with a sniper, and uh, uh, and I mean he was killed instantly, and um, and then we uh, we lost a couple of other guys to serious wounds. Well, one sergeant got shot through the spine, was crippled for life. Uh, Couple other people uh, were wounded, and that was probably the big, the big sobering moment. But that came after these smaller moments. That uh, this is not uh, this is not a football game. This is not hot damn Vietnam, Vietnam. It's more like goddamn Vietnam.
0: <laughs> well, and to that end, let me ask you because if, you know in your memoirs and in some of your writings after your time in vietnam you talk about how essentially and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it here in short terms but you know how the government kind of misled uh and there was mistrust about the government about vietnam w- was that a thought that ever got into your head while you were there or were you just too busy trying to survive because i can remember when i was in my first deployment to iraq i was sitting there with another major and and i was lamenting the amount of work we were doing on a daily basis and feeling like no matter what we did we were never going to be able to give the Iraqis enough training and enough, uh, you know, uh, uh, tools to be able to secure their own country, secure their own borders and everything else. And, you know, I remember she looked at me succinctly and said, "Small victories, Mark. You got to win the small victories. You can't win the big one without winning all the small ones." And I always took that with me. But as an aside, yeah. it kind of it, it put me at peace for the moment, saying, "You know what? I'm not going to be able to win the war in one shot here. But if I do my job each day, I'll be able to take a small victory." So, in, in that sense, when you think back on when you realize it's oh damn Vietnam, did you ever get into a moment right there? Where you're saying, "What the hell are we doing here?" Oh yeah.
1: I, I I would say I don't know maybe after about six months uh, something like that. Um, not only did I think that I mean I heard it uh, from um, mostly from these uh, veteran NCOs that we had guys who had uh, fought in Korea and one of them had been in you know, on the at the Battle of Okinawa in forty nineteen forty five as well as in Korea. And, uh, he was just, he was, I remember he was the, was a mortar, mortar platoon sergeant and, uh, he couldn't put it together. He says, what, what, what are we, you know, what's the mission? Cause the mission kept changing. You know, when we first went there, we were just supposed to secure the airfield, then we were supposed to secure the airfield, but go on these limited offensive operations. Uh, and, um, then there were to be these big search-and-destroy operations that we were going to take on the what were called the main force, Viet Cong, as well as the North Vietnamese Army. And so the mission kept changing. And um, I remember, too, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Green, came out there and... Um, I, I think, think he was at our battalion or regimental headquarters, but anyway, he made this announcement that the, our mission was to kill VC. That was it. Period. Don't don't take this hill. Don't take this town. Don't um, don't uh, win the war, so to speak. We're just there to kill people, uh, which was um, kind of baffling. Uh, I mean, you you know that you kill people in in war, but it's usually that's a means to an end, not right. the end itself. And uh, um, so, the, I it was in, it interested me, and then I, I saw that get worse in the fall and in the early winter spring, as as we would call it. Actually, the as the dry season moved into the monsoon season in Vietnam and. The weather turned absolutely awful. You were you were just drenched, soaking wet all the time, <laughs> and, uh, and you know guys had immersion foot, similar to the trench foot in World War One, and um, you were just constantly miserable, constantly slogging around in the mud, and going over the same ground over and over again. Um, you send out a patrol, uh, maybe you'd get in a firefight, maybe not. Come back. Two three days later, the patrol goes out over much the same ground, and uh, and you started to hear grumbling then. Uh, and I used to get asked questions as the platoon commander, by my sergeants and by the troops themselves. You know, LT, what 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 are we doing here? You know, and I would I would have to make some kind of inspirational speech about fighting communism and. Some other nonsense, but uh, after a while, I I, I couldn't even um, voice that any longer. And and what was interesting, this was in 1966. This was a time when back in the states there was a lot of optimism,
0: right? Sure, yeah.
1: Fed by fed by the bullshit that the Pentagon and the White House were feeding the American public that. Uh, we were we were winning the war, and we all, all of us there kind of knew we weren't winning it, but we weren't losing it either.
0: I mean, it's just, uh, when I hear you say stuff like that, and, and I get it, I, I understand it. I mean, trust me, I do. Um, you know, I I just wonder how, does it make it harder to stay alive when all that's going on? Like, is it is it something that weighs on your decision making? Um, because... You know, it, politics go out the window the minute the first bullet flies by your head. You know, it, it doesn't matter Indiana. what Washington decides. Right. It doesn't matter yeah. what Lyndon Johnson yeah. said at the time. It doesn't matter if there was a, a great swell of support for the war. And none of that matters while you're trying to save your life and the life of your teammates.
1: Yeah, I, but, I, but I'm I'm a little unsure of your question.
0: Well, I, I guess I'm just wondering, I, I, did it? did the frustration of government stuff make it harder to stay alive on a daily basis? Well, it wasn't so much the frustration as it was the lack of
1: clarity of a mission. Um, And uh, so, for example, from about November to about February, November of 65 to February of 66, uh, my platoon ran so many patrols, squad size as well as platoon size patrols, in addition to company size assaults, that I had troops um, on patrol actually asleep on their feet. I mean, they, they were utterly exhausted. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe for one or two hours a night you'd get some sleep, and the rest of the time you didn't. And, um, and I think that that the fact that they had to just keep this, these these patrols up over and over and over again, as I said, over the same ground, that probably made it made it more difficult to, uh, as, as you said, to, to stay alive and keep and and, and keep your uh, keep your men alive.
0: Yeah, I mean, and again, just it's similar but not the same when you talk about. What we had to do in Iraq and Afghanistan, particularly for me in Iraq, you know, I mean, I I would be on the same roads, you know, three, four times a week, 10, 12 times a month, whatever it was, uh, driving in the same direction, going over the same ground over and over again and facing the same exact dangers day in and day out. And, you know, I I always tell people that I felt like there were certain days I woke up and I felt like it was only a matter of time before something really bad happened to me. Like, how many more times can you do this before your number gets called, so to speak? Did you feel that same thing?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I I felt that, but I it, there was a I had an odd reaction to it, though. You know, this is how so? I said, this is well maybe it wasn't that odd. I, I I've actually read enough war books to know that it's happened to other people. Um, so come come the monsoon season. It's November, as I said. We're miserable, running patrol after patrol, firefight after firefight. My I. I these fit, these numbers I'm about to give you are not completely accurate, but they're close. Um, when I I joined this one company in the first Marines, um, and when I joined the company, I uh, it had a uh, active strength uh, on on the rolls of 145 men. Uh, by January, we were down to 90. Oh, damn! And it was all it was all snipers. Small scale uh, ambushes and what you guys would have called IEDs, we called them command detonated mines.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh,
1: but basically, you know, Claymores, whether homemade or actual uh, actual Claymores. So I got to a point. I said, "Well, I, I'm just done for." <laughs> <You know? laughs> that uh, that it's as you said, only a matter of time before I'm I'm going to get my legs blown off or I'm going to get killed. And, uh, and I remember going out on this one uh, operation where my platoon was in support of a different rifle company. And um, we were actually supposed to act as a diversionary force uh, for this company. We were, in effect, supposed to draw fire. Um, and I was in this, I said, I don't give a shit. Yeah. I don't give a fuck what happens, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Uh, I don't care who I kill, and I don't care if I'm killed. Um, and I was, I was in this bizarre mode, uh, mood of happiness.
0: Yeah, but you almost feel invincible. To, it doesn't matter because you, you've kind of given in to what the re- end result is, and you mm-hmm. just realize I, if I spend time worrying about it, it's only going to make it worse. So screw it. Let's just let's enjoy where we are, man. I mean, we're in it. Yeah. Let's do it.
1: That was pretty much it. Yeah. I was uh, I, I it was like I reverted uh, but in a different sense of the term, I'd have to think about it to define it, to the happy warrior when when we when we uh, left for Vienna.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I saw guys, and, and then some guys like took stupid chances, you know, like they just, you know, went balls out like, hey, I'm just going to run straight into gunfire because you know what, screw it. I mean, the, the end is coming anyway type mentality, yeah. which I didn't necessarily agree with. I could see the whole, you know, idea of feeling a little bit like, you know, let me just Put to turn his frown upside down to put it you know very um, you know simply, but uh, I, I was never a fan of taking stupid chances. There was always a part of me that said, "Yeah, you know what? Let's have a little bit of measured decision making here."
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's I mean that's obviously the rational way to go to go about it. There's some people. There, there's by the way a uh, wonderful poem that Wilfred Owen wrote in World War One called S.I.W which stands for self-inflicted wound. And um, and it was, uh, the subject of the poem is this uh, British trooper in the trenches just constantly under shell fire and, uh, um, and sniper fire and whatever else they had on the Western Front, who finally just um, kills himself. not Not out of despair so much as he just, can't stand the tension of waiting to die anymore (laughs) and just decides to get over, get it, get over it. And, and, uh, and I think there were, I saw guys, you may have seen them, uh, you indicated that you did in Iraq who will run into gunfire just to get it over with.
0: Yeah. Because the pressure becomes too much. It it gets to a point where it just doesn't matter anymore. With
1: that, with that sword over your head, uh, uh, becomes more intolerable than actually getting killed or badly wounded. Um, now, as for me, on that operation we're talking about, and it's mentioned in a rumor of war, is that I-, I took a couple of stupid chances, but not you know, because I wanted to get it over with or anything else like that. I had this this weird, odd feeling that I was I not only didn't give a shit if I got killed, but at the same time, I felt I would never get, never die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I was, uh, I think I described myself as being like a Sioux Indian wearing the ghost shirt that could deflect bullets. Um, and, and at one point after, after a pretty brisk firefight, um, and we were still under some sporadic small arms fire, I. Well, we couldn't tell where it was coming from. I stood up and started deliberately running back and forth to draw the fire, so we could figure out where it was coming from. And I was yelling at the at the Viet Cong across the river. Um, I was yelling stuff like "Fuck Ho Chi Minh" and "Hanoi uh, <laughs> by Christmas" and <laughs> this nutty stuff. And I just I felt. Um, Uh, invulnerable at the same time that I didn't care if I was vulnerable some kind of weird dichotomy there
0: Phil when you're going through all this uh, you know what still stays with you to this day more than anything when we talk about this when we start to bring up these experiences the emotions that you feel and the things that you go through you know what still stays with you
1: I think uh, I think what still stays with me is a certain or two things. One is is I call it an elegiac feeling. Um, Just a a feeling that all these guys I knew I mean I 16 guys that I knew some of them very intimately um, have their names on that wall in Washington. So uh, and Two or three of them were my you know, my best buddies, and so I, I have this just this feeling of loss and of of waste um, that comes over me now and then. Years and years ago, it used to come over me to the point that, well, maybe it still does because not too long ago, maybe a few years ago, at a battalion reunion, I uh, I went. To the wall for maybe the second or third time, and just broke into into sobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I mean, I, uncontrollable crying, you know. And uh, it, that still comes out. Uh, and then the other sense is is um, um, that I don't know how to f- what word to use for this. It's a sense of my own personal moral failure uh, in. Uh, in combat. I, uh, you know, and I'd always thought that um, the virtue that you had to have in combat, and it's true that you have to have it, is physical, is physical courage and the ability under fire and under great stress to think clearly and, and to know what to do so you don't lose people unnecessarily. I never... It never occurred to me that you could that you yourself could turn into into a, a, a savage, a monster. Mm-hmm. Um, and I oh, I wish I had it here in front of me. And it's been true of war for for a long, long time. General um, Marshall in World War Two said something to the effect of about what what war does. To a person's psychology and what war does to a man's morals, and and how it is up to him and his officers to control the beast. He called it the beast in man. And I, I, I wished I had read that before I went to Vietnam because because I never uh, it never occurred to me, and and I uh, I can talk about it now. I've written about it, uh, with a, with a degree of removal, a degree of objectivity, but I just, I became something and someone I didn't even recognize.
0: You know, it's interesting. And as you say it, it's resonating with me and it's, it's almost like a, a biophysical response because you know, look, I, I've been to the Vietnam Memorial and I've went there and, and I felt it inside of me. I, I, you know, I know of a couple of names on that wall um, mm-hmm. and you just walk it and you see name after name. And having been through that experience in the Middle East, it, it, that breaking down is normal. Uh, I, there currently yeah. is right now, as we speak here on February 6th, there is talks in the works for a global war on terrorism memorial that's going to be built and erected in DC. And I, I know a couple of yeah. people who are on the foundation and, and who are helping get the whole thing done. And I, I thought about myself going to that memorial. And I, I think about somebody like you going to the Vietnam and I would expect I would have the same reaction. And the only thing I can come up with is because it's not, look, I came back whole and in one piece, right? It's not even like if, if you, you could leave part of your body, your physical body on that battlefield, you, you could lose an arm or a leg and leave it there. That's not what you're really leaving behind. Your soul gets impacted by combat in ways that you cannot describe. And and yes. parts of you, parts of who you are and who you were before you got there are forever left on that battlefield. And you can't bring them back with you. They stay there. They die there and you are forever changed because of it. And that is the emotional response. I mean, I don't know. I say this I left years of my life on the battlefield. I don't know if I'd like literally I'm gonna only live to eighty four as opposed to eighty-five. You know what I'm saying? But but you, you you understand what I'm saying. That emotional toll leaves it stays on the battlefield and you never take it back home with you. And none of us ever do. And that is why I think that emotional response is solicited, because just the thought of being back there and going through it again and I do it in a heartbeat because I still serve, if they if the bell ever rang, I'd answer. But I know exactly what I'm laying on the line, and it's a lot more than an arm or a leg, or even my physical body itself. It's, it, there's much, much more.
1: Yeah, well, that, uh, I'll tell you, Mark. That's that's very well, very well said. Um, I know a lot. Of, um, oh, some years after I got back from Vietnam, ten, twelve, twenty years—I don't remember now—but I would tell people that it was true. As so I said that, I said, "You know." I said, basically what happened to me in Vietnam and I think happened to everybody that was there, at least in combat, was that um since you, you you were die you, you died and were reborn, I said, but into somebody you did not know. Mm-hmm. And I said I and that happened to me to such an extent that I I have to this day, at the age of seventy seven, <laughs> these vivid memories that I know are accurate of Vietnam. But if, if somebody starts talking to me about stuff that happened before I went there, it's almost as if that was a life lived by somebody else. And I, I can't remember it. I can't remember stuff I did in high school, in college, or things like that. And, uh, and I think when you said that you leave, you leave
0: that essential part of yourself there is very true. Yeah, I mean, war changes everybody in different ways, but it undisputably, it, it, you are never the same person before you left, and and that's just the the, the price that we pay. Um, there's no other way to say it, and and civilians will never understand it, um, and that's okay. I'm not asking them to, but it is part of the civil military divide that exists, and and you know you're choosing to leave part of yourself there for the guy next to you or the gal next to you i mean that's that's essentially what you're doing it's it's about the person and the individual next to you and their well-being so i mean you know we could wax poetic about this for hours on end obviously um, but let's kind of go to the point where you're leaving vietnam um, when you find out you're going and what's it like and what sort of emotions are going through you as you're about to to depart
1: well i i just I remember getting um on uh, again just just as I, I landed in Vietnam in a C130 transport flight that I left that way um with a uh, uh, a bunch of guys that were uh, I forgot when, when you came in it was called a replacement draft but I don't know we were anyway we were all of our tours were up and um we were leaving and and I remember um being up toward the cabin somehow, where the pilot was and stuff like that, I got—I don't know how I got up there—but and looking out uh, a window and just seeing uh, all of these hills of Vietnam falling away, and just feeling this enormous, enormous sense of relief and of uh, almost of being almost a feeling of of being blessed. Um, I I was, uh, to say I was happy uh, would not even describe it. It was just like some terrible, terrible burden had been lifted off of me. And uh, uh, I I think that maybe I could describe it uh, analogously is that I I imagine a guy who's done, say, five or six years uh, in, prison mm-hmm. would feel when the uh, when the uh, prison gates open and they, they give them your new suit of clothes and say you're a free man. It must feel like that.
0: Yeah and, and here's the dangerous part and we just spoke about this, but here's here's where soldiers get in trouble. Because you don't realize when you're leaving there's such elation and such happiness and relief that oh my God I made it, right? And you try to go back to a life of being the person you were before you got into combat, but you you don't realize that you are now somebody different. And for some people, they realize it quickly. For some people, they struggle with it and everything else. But coming to grips with the fact that you are a completely changed individual because of combat is where soldiers, Marines, airmen struggle and why they have such trouble integrating and reacclimating back to normal life. And it's it's, it's just a... um, you almost put, you think that, Hey, the person that fought in combat stays there when in reality, the person who showed up before combat stays there and the new one comes back.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, very, very true. That's, uh, that's, that's what happens. And, you know, And you know, it's always happened. I mean, I just, yes. uh, I just saw this wonderful, wonderful documentary that this New Zealander did about the British army on the Western front. Um, it's called They Shall Not Grow Old. And uh, toward the end of the documentary, which, which um, uh, and toward the end of the war, uh, at the end of the war, uh, these British Tommies, who'd been over there for years and who managed to survive that slaughter, talked about this total feeling of, they didn't use the word, but of alienation from the civilian population and this sense of brotherhood with uh, the other guys who'd been there, and uh, the, this one soldier that that had been recorded uh, back in the '60s, he was then in his, like his age, the age I am now. He was then that age, and uh, and he had said that uh, no matter how how kind, uh, how welcoming the civilians were, he said you you, you couldn't relate to them anymore, and and uh, it was a funny moment that may resonate with you is that this one guy said that uh, he went back to this factory in 1918 that he had been working in in 1915, and there was still this guy working in the factory that he had worked with and who looks at him and he says, hey, mate, he says, how, how are you? Where have you been? <laughs> and, uh, he had no concept of where the... Where the where, what what this guy had gone through and I kind of feel when I think about it that, that I, I, you know I hate I hate I loathe the term post-traumatic stress disorder why? Uh, because it it's called a disorder and I keep telling people I said the guy with the disorder is the guy who goes over and he's in combat and he sees people killed he kills people himself and he comes back exactly who he was before. I said that person. I said is really disturbed.
0: <laughs> right. That makes sense. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, but like you said, and you know, the uh, trying to fit back uh, into civilian society. I remember that uh, after a period of time, when I. I I, had, uh, I was lucky, by the way, when I got back from Vietnam in the uh, summer of 66, and, uh, and I still had nine months left on my, uh, on my uh, military service. And so I was an infantry uh, training company commander in, uh, at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, for nine months. So I had that period of transition. I wasn't dumped right back into civilian life, thank God. Um, but even so, uh, when I, uh, when my enlistment uh, was up, my service was up, I got discharged from active duty. I, I bummed around Europe and Mexico and stuff like that for like four months or something, five months. I just couldn't face, uh, being back home again and back, back in, back in civilian life and Finally, uh, just economics forced me to get a job at right. uh, the 3M company, Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing. And I remember I was sitting in the company cafeteria one day after about, I don't know, I'd been there a few months maybe. And all of these guys were talking about the houses. They were young guys then, you know, and they were just getting married and I was still single. They were building houses in the suburbs. They were talking about their lawns and um, and how the how the construction of their new houses was going. And I I felt so completely out of it. Uh, And I said, "Who gives a fuck about your lawn?" (laughs) Uh, And. uh, and I, I would think things that were that might, might sound kind of self-aggrandizing, but I, I would look at myself in this company cafeteria, and I said, Jesus Christ, this is a year ago. I said, uh, I had 200 men under my command, and, and, and a couple months before that I had 50 men under my command in in combat. And I'm sitting here listening to talk about lawns. I was ready. I was actually ready to ship over. I, I, which is re-up in, in army talk mm-hmm. um, I was I was almost that that's reality to me not this
0: so Phil how do you transition into being an author I mean what's the motivation to start writing
1: well I think you know I, I, I may have had an instinct for it even going back into high school uh, and uh, the thing that's, that's me from realistic was the uh, I got into the newspaper business, uh, which I loved um, uh, because uh, it, in in some ways it, it was very unpredictable. Um, you know, you never knew when you woke up in the morning what assignment you would have. And uh, and while I kind of hate to admit this, it was true, is that back in the '60s late 60s, especially uh, in Chicago, where I was practicing as a reporter, there was a great deal of, you know, violence. And uh, I was out with cops, you know. I remember actually one time being out with cops when two street gangs were fighting with each other and we were caught in the middle and hiding under a squad car and kind of getting off on that stuff because it duplicated this experience of combat to an extent. But anyway, the, the newspaper business saved me from it, and, uh, and, uh, and I really was, was pretty damn good at it. So I got used to writing for a living. But all, what really motivated me was just what we've been talking about, this sense of outsiderness. You know, most authors, when you read their biographies, have had something... That put them outside of their society. Uh, Truman Capote, for example, was gay at a time when you couldn't admit you were gay. Right. Um, Others had uh, perhaps uh, bipolar disorder or some mental or emotional uh, syndrome that they had inherited or they'd lost their parents. There was always some terrible wound that they'd suffered. And I, I, I didn't have any of that except after I got back from Vietnam and I felt outside of my society. I didn't really feel like I belonged to, um, to American society. And, and that somehow was the genesis of wanting to write about what I had seen in, in, in Vietnam and what I had learned. And it, it, uh, it became kind of an obsession of trying to get that experience down on paper. Um, it, it wasn't exactly what I would call therapy in the, in the classical sense of the term, but I had such a confusion going on in my heart and in my head that I felt this, this compulsion to make it coherent, to bring some order to all of this disorder. And uh, not alone in that, by the way, is that Carl uh, Marlantes, who wrote Matterhorn, uh, <clears throat> this huge novel about Vietnam, he told me that when he got back, he he, uh, he, he created a thing he called a mind dump. And he just just dumped literally everything that was in his head about the war on, on paper, which with no sense of trying to make order out of it or anything else like that, but but it was a way of expelling some of those those demons and he was later able to shape it into this wonderful novel. So I think that that, <clears throat> that started me off, but the but the the great the great theme that I've I've had not in everything I've written, but in many of the things I've written is, and I alluded to it earlier, is when a person or people are in a situation or a place or both, the usual guidelines to civilized or normal behavior are missing or very, very vague. How do you, how do you make moral decisions? Do you make the right ones? And um, you are forced back onto yourself and onto your own uh, innermost values. And uh, Vietnam awakened me to that, and and I've I've probably been writing about it ever since. Uh, as I said, not in everything I've ever done, but in men, in in. In many
0: of the works I've done, well, your your first acclaimed memoir, "A Rumor of War," um, it was you know published over forty years ago, but at one point five million copies. I mean, that's the one that really is uh, the most about your time in Vietnam, and that's the one you know we referenced a lot here uh, in this discussion. But certainly, it's, I think it's worth it for people of this generation to go back and, and read that and take a look at it and understand because uh, you know, look, I, I am I am beyond you know just. Talking to you has been cathartic for me uh, just because learning about the experience and understanding that um, the differences in our, in our generations of combat aren't as dissimilar as we would think. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of uh, continuing themes that, that stay together, and certainly um, hearing you talk so vividly about your memories just kind of churns up memories in my own mind, and we sit here and we go, well, maybe we're not that different after all.
1: Oh, uh, I, I think so. Uh, it, it has helped me, you know. I've I read a lot about uh, memoirs of past wars, and um, as well as histories. And uh, as, as different as say Vietnam was from, uh, I don't know, World War One or World War Two, there there is there is a commonality in experience uh, of experience in battle. That soldiers have probably felt for for millennia.
0: Right. Um,
1: The uh, if you'll notice, I think uh, I think it's it's this uh, epigram I use um, at the beginning, you know, of the first part of *A Roman War* from a Roman, the Roman uh, Roman military historian of the fourth century, uh, Vegetius. Vegetius. And he says that no great reliance is to be placed on young soldiers for for their eagerness for action, uh, because the prospect of fighting is welcome to those who are strangers to it. And my God, you know, (laughs) that describes the hot damn Vietnam moment.
0: (laughs) And to that end, Phil, I mean, you know, Sun Tzu, The Art of War, which was written, you know, 4th, 5th centuries, it still applies today. I mean, everything about it, there, there's still yeah. certain mantras and ideas that we use in combat today that, that have been holding true forever. So um, it's, it's the one thing that has stood the test of time, more so than uh, other than the, the human condition itself, you know, combat and, and the nature of war uh, will always be around for as long as there's humans roaming the earth.
1: Um yeah I believe so even even I think in this it's it interests me in this day and age of uh, like robotic warfare sure um I I can't recall the title of the film but I thought it was very good it was a film with um uh, oh damn a british actress <laughs> uh anyway um it's a film about um uh, drone pilots and uh and this this emotional and moral dilemma they feel twelve thousand miles from their target, and watching it in real time and then it 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 it, it climax the movie climaxes where the drone pilot has to blow up this uh, a terrorist safe house, apparently somewhere I guess in Pakistan or, or Afghanistan. I'm not sure where, but this little girl shows up, and and he's got to press the button at that moment. And he's in Missouri, and you know, and she's on the other side of the world. And the uh, the psychological turmoil that that creates. Um, I, as a matter of fact, I can't even. I can't even relate. I don't even know what that must be
0: like. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole different world, to say the least. Uh, it, it sparks up a definitely very interesting uh, conversation. And, and look, we, you know, as I said, we could talk for hours more. Um, you know, I would love to uh, give, give our listeners a lot more. But obviously, uh, what we've touched on, I think, is important. And certainly the work that you have done and uh, your point of view from Vietnam has uh, been one that, that I'll remember for quite some time. This is a fantastic discussion, Phil. I certainly appreciate uh, all your candor and all your honesty.
1: Well, I, I thanks, thank you very much for asking me to uh, speak to you.
0: Phil Caputo, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground.
1: All right. Again, thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show... Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales.